Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. Today we've got a fun ride report from the Cliff Bar Cycle Scramble. Also reviews of a couple of pair of bike shorts. And we're going to start things off with Greg's review of the updated Santa Cruz Bronson. Greg Hiles, our editor-in-chief, and he actually got a chance to ride the new Santa Cruz Bronson out at Outer Bike a couple weeks ago. This is his review. While Santa Cruz has done away with official model gears in their lineup, they recently released some new updates to the Bronson that dramatically changed the way this bike rides. Compared to the previous Bronson, the latest rendition now sports a one degree slacker head tube angle, putting the bike now at an even 66 degrees. The top tube is about an inch longer, stretching out the cockpit even more. The chainstays are shorter at 17.01 inches on all models. The rear end of the bike is boosts 148 spaced and the frame features internal cable routing. Essentially, the Bronson has gone more nomad. In addition to being longer and slacker, the Bronson also now uses the same suspension linkage as the Nomad. However, it still maintains 150 millimeters of suspension travel front and rear. The bike I tested was made of Santa Cruz's top tier CC carbon. The parts spec included the NV wheel upgrade, a SRAM X01 drivetrain, RockShox Pike Fork, Fox Float X Evol rear shock, and SRAM guide brakes. Claimed weight for this build is 26.5 pounds, but it comes at a cost, $8,600 to be exact. The Bronson is feathery light and well-specced, but from the get-go I found it to be rather uninspiring ride. The VPP suspension platform felt firm on the climbs, like this bike should be a great climber, as was the previous model, but the 66 degree head tube angle and what felt like an ultra-long cockpit created a very wandery feeling on the climb. The updated Bronson felt like it was the longest, slackest bike I rode at both inner bike and outer bike, and all of those detrimental climb characteristics were in full force. Getting the Bronson to cooperate and go where I wanted it when pointed uphill was an absolute chore. It is worth noting that, according to the specs, the top tube length on the Bronson is 23.46 inches, which is actually a bit shorter than the 23.58 inch top tube on my everyday rider, a 150mm GT Force. However, the geometry is 1.2 degrees slacker on the Bronson and I already felt like my force was a bit wandry on the climbs with its current configuration. To compensate on the force, I regularly utilize a Fox Talus fork, which allows me to drop the front end of my bike and steepen the head tube angle for climbing. While the RockShox Pike is available in a travel adjust model, it doesn't come spec'd on the Bronson. One might think that the geometry updates might fix the one complaint I had about the previous Bronson, which overall I thought was fantastic. That complaint was an abundance of pedal strikes. However, I still encountered a very similar amount of pedal strikes on this year's Bronson, and it was the worst of all the bikes I've demoed at both Interbike, Veil Outlier, Off-Road, and Outer Bike this fall in the pedal strike department. Thanks to the slack head tube angle and the long cockpit, you'd expect it to be great in the descents. On the uber-steep Killer B Slick Rock descent, the geometry of the Bronson felt on point, but there are very few trails out there that are that steep. Also, generally, when a trail gets that steep, it's not smooth slick rock, it's chunky and gnarly. 
Despite 150 millimeters of travel front and back and proven suspension components, I found neither of the suspension to work well on the Bronson. Through moderate speed, moderately sized obstacles, I had no issue, but I wouldn't buy a $8,600 bike for moderate obstacles. When it came to bigger hits, the firmness of the rear end didn't transition into a burly plush feel as I expected after coming off the intense Tracer 27.5C with the same VPP suspension. Instead, it felt, again, uninspiring and had me wishing for more travel. On the front end, despite setting sag correctly and running a fork I already loved, the Pike, I found myself bottoming out the travel on obstacles that I didn't think would be an issue. Now, I could potentially have bumped up the fork pressure a bit, but as I mentioned, I felt like the tech at the booth had set up the suspension correctly. Yet, I bottomed out the fork and almost crashed on a not-that-bad obstacle. Honestly, I was kind of shocked to note the poor front-end suspension performance, and I don't know what to attribute it to. Could it be because the Pike was a 150 instead of the 160 I'm used to? Could it be that the tweet geometry doesn't actually ride that great in techie situations either? I'm currently undecided on what caused this issue, but I can definitely note that it happened more than once over the course of my 10 mile test ride. Maybe you think I'm totally off base here. Maybe you think my ride totally missed the mark. But when I compare the geometry stats of the current Bronson to the current Nomad, my head starts to spin. To begin, the Nomad sports a 165mm travel rear end and a 160mm front end. 15 millimeters and 10 millimeters longer than the Bronson, respectively. However, despite that longer travel length, the top tube is actually shorter by 0.46 inches in the size medium Nomad than it is in the size medium Bronson. While the head tube angle is indeed a degree slacker in the Nomad than in the Bronson, that makes sense with the longer travel. However, the seat tube angles are nearly identical, with the Nomad actually being a touch steeper at 74.2 inches versus 74 inches on the Bronson. Bottom bracket height is almost identical, chainstays are a mere four hundredths of an inch longer on the Nomad versus the Bronson, and the stack is just a hair taller at 23.62 inches versus 23.43 in the Bronson. However, again, coming back to reach, the Nomad's reach is shorter than the Bronson's by 0.4 inches. So what do you get when you buy the Bronson over the Nomad? You get a longer cockpit, but the travel amount doesn't keep up with that added length. Instead it drops by 10mm in the front and 15mm in the rear. The head tube angle gets a bit steeper at 66 degrees versus 65, but that makes sense in keeping with the fork length. You drop a bit of weight as well. The end result? The Bronson is a less capable descending version of the Nomad that doesn't provide shorter riders with many, if any, tangible climbing benefits. Based on previous tests I've done aboard their bikes, I've come to expect excellence from Santa Cruz. Also, I definitely expect excellence from any bike with an $8,600 price tag. But I found no excellence in the latest rendition of the Bronson. Yes, it's light, but that doesn't really matter if the performance is uninspiring, or worse, if it isn't up to the standards of a bike of this caliber. I'm sure plenty of people will buy and love the latest Bronson, because Santa Cruz is such a hot brand. But for anyone looking at a Bronson purchase, I'd highly recommend that you test it back to back with other bikes of the same caliber that are currently on the market. Who knows, maybe the Bronson's new geometry will work better for you than it did for me. But if you ask my two cents, there are at least a dozen other bikes on the market in this category that I'd rather ride before I take the Bronson out for another spin. So that was a pretty honest review from Greg, and we've definitely received a lot of feedback via the website about it, and also from Santa Cruz. So be sure to tune into our podcast later this week where Greg talks more about this test ride. So next up, we have a story from Maureen Gaffney about her experience at the Cliff Bar Cycle Scramble. And this is a bike race that's unlike any other race you've probably been in before. 
When I was informed I'd be racing in the inaugural Cliff Bar Cycle Scramble due to my amazing prowess on a short track with obstacles and ramps and jumps, or because the first stringer was called away to a wedding and nobody else could or would do it, I was confused. Wait, it's a what? A relay race thing with stuff in the middle. One bike, four people. I think there's beer. Good, you're in. Bye. And so I was. The Marin County Fairgrounds were transformed into an obstacle course with wall rides, sand pits, log jams, keg jumps, and lots of blinged out bikes and riders. There were three levels of competition to choose from, each with a short tagline. Coasters, I have a bike. Toasters, I ride a bike. Roasters, I live to bike. We were toasters and our Bling Mobile was a comfort bike by Specialized, whose official name currently escapes me. When our team captain rolled that beauty out, it got kind of quiet. Jim rubbed his chin, Lou cleared her throat, and a small whistle escaped my lips. See, it's real easy to get on and off because of the step-through frame. Bronson's, Ripley's, and Rubion's trotted by and winked at our mount. Only thing is, don't use this gear or this one, else the chain will fall off. When our race was called, we assembled in our assigned athlete paddock. That made me feel alternately badass and also vaguely goat-like. Our team captain took the first lap, and sure enough, as he rounded the bend and into the tractor tires, our collective face fell as he dismounted and frantically fiddled with the chain. He ran the bike over the line and into our goat pen, where we bleated our angst. Not only had the chain fallen off, the entire derailleur had snapped and dangled like a grease-encrusted dingleberry. It was not pretty. For the remaining laps in the first round, my teammates and I paddled the thing around the course in Flintstone fashion, the step-through feature now providing its value on the ramps and keg jumps we had to dismount for. As we clearly did not secure ourselves a spot in the top four with this clown-like performance, we'd have to go to a shootout round if we had any hope of making the finals. A friend loaned us an Ellsworth and we were back in business. While we waited for our chance to redeem ourselves, there were food trucks and a Lagunitas brewing booth to be patronized. Competitors were treated to all-day access to the Athlete Cafe with the price of admission, which was $0, by the way, and quite a spread was available. Lamb, chicken, and veggie kebabs, Greek salad, quinoa, tzatziki, pita, hummus, and more. Beer calmed my race nerves, and now we were up again. The Ellsworth made a fine steed for our team captain, who sailed through the course. I was up next. It was neat how much faster you could go with pedals. I attacked ramps that I thought I mightn't and rode the sand pit with finesse, if I do say so myself. I even heard the announcer say, and Marin Bike Coalition in third. I was thrilled. Then came the doohickey obstacle that contained no tabletop, just an upside down V with a log at its apex. There's surely a name for it, but since it is absent from my lexicon, I'll call it the Biff Maker. I cleared the top with the least possible amount of forward motion, came to a teetering halt at the pinnacle, watched my front wheel head for that small but very attractive space between the plywood and the rail at the bottom. Target fixation fully engaged, I stuffed the wheel into the fences like I was trying to make a statement. All my parts appeared to be attached and in working order, and I had just the right amount of blood coming from my left knee to earn some honor. I bounced up, did some kind of stupid victory salute, and finished my lap. Still not managing to land one of the top two spots, crowd favorite was our last and final chance. While we got some mileage out of the whole dangling dingleberry derailleur thing, it wasn't enough. This meant we were free to drink free beer and watch the games. Our heckling at the keg jumps only worked on the lady pirates who ran the course in full regalia, each with a plastic sword in her mouth. After significant harassment on lap three, the bravest one got a twinkle in her eye and made a beeline for the big one. 
It is my hope that she felt richly rewarded by our elated cheers. In the end, Pigeon Press won the coasters category, the washed-up wakeboarders won the toasters, and the jailbaiters won the roasters. A hearty but friendly rivalry between the National Interscholastic Cycling Association and the NorCal High School Mountain Biking League made for great spectating, as did watching the jailbaiters made up of pro riders Ken Wells, Eric Porter, Kurt Voorhees, and Carson Storch. These guys are real crowd pleasers on the ramps and jumps, getting mad air and loving every minute of the wild cheers each trick brought. Live music by the Cold War kids topped off a day of incredibly silly fun, and I can't wait to do it again, if anyone will have me. So up next we have a review from Aaron Chamberlain of Alpine Stars Pathfinder Shorts. With a basic design and smart features, the Alpine Stars Pathfinder Shorts are a no-nonsense bit of writing kit. They retail for $115, which includes a removable liner chamois, and are available in black, gray, red, or blue. While they look simple, a lot of thought went into the design of these shorts. The Pathfinder shorts are extremely light thanks to the fabric and the judicious use of zippers, snaps, and Velcro. They feature a multi-panel construction with a stretchy ripped stop fabric. The seat area has no seams to prevent uncomfortable chafing. The waistband is adjustable via two Velcro tabs located on either hip. Two metal snaps close the waistband above the front zipper. There are two hand pockets that go down pretty deep which is a nice touch. Many shorts have shallow pockets that will empty their contents onto the trail as soon as you start pedaling. Why even include pockets if they're essentially useless? So you have somewhere to put your hands when you're not riding? Thankfully, this isn't an issue on the Pathfinders. There's also a zippered pocket on the right leg that runs from about mid-thigh down to your knee. There's a lot of room in there, but it's best to only stash light items in it. Anything slightly heavy, such as a multi-tool or phone, will swing around and bang into your knees. I did find, however, that it fits a folded topo map perfectly. This came in super handy during a solo ride in Bend, Oregon, where I had no idea where I was going. Instead of having to take off my pack to grab the map at every trail junction, I just unzipped the pocket. The map was light enough that it wasn't uncomfortable while pedaling. I thought that since Alpine Stars is an Italian company, their sizes may run a tad on the small size, but this was not the case. If anything, the size 36 shorts were a touch large, and I likely could have worn the 34. These shorts are the perfect length for me, hitting just below the knee. I also like the slimmer cut of the legs. They aren't overly baggy, instead relying on their stretchy material to provide comfort. The included chamois was unfortunately, like most included chamois, not super awesome. It fit well and was comfortable for short spins, but the pad wasn't enough for really long days in the saddle. More often than not, I wear the Pathfinders over another pair of bib shorts. This does mean I have to occasionally stop to pull the shorts up, but it's not a deal breaker. As mentioned above, the length works great for me, and they are comfortable for all-day pedal fests. In fact, their length combined with the slim, snag-free cut, stretchy fit, and lightweight makes them the most comfortable short I've ever had. Add in that they dry quickly, and they're the perfect hot-weather short. The things that make them such great riding shorts also work well for hiking, and I've used them extensively for that application as well. On the topic of durability, the Pathfinders have been stellar. I've had my fair share of crashes while wearing the shorts this summer, from over-the-bar affairs to slide-outs. Even though the material is light and thin, it's proven to be rugged. There is some slight wear starting to show in the seat area, but nothing unexpected. Fit and finish is also top-notch. The stitching is still tight, no seams are coming undone, and the zippers are still zipping. With a retail price of $115, the Pathfinders aren't cheap, but they are on par with premium shorts from other brands. However, it would be nice if they were also offered without the liner, as that would save a few bucks. This was my first experience with Alpine Stars gear, and I can see why they've been in business for over 50 years. 
Pathfinder shorts were functional, good-looking, and durable. Even after a summer of heavy rotation and a few falls, they still look sharp. Although they were designed for riding and excel there, they're perfect for hiking, a day at the lake, or an evening at the pub. So we also have a review of another pair of shorts. This one's of the Enduro Women's MT500 Spray Baggy Short, and it comes to us from Helena Kotala. The beginning of this summer in Pennsylvania brought a lot of rain. Every day, my garden exploded. I was able to paddle some of my favorite whitewater streams in warm weather, which hardly ever happens. And mountain biking meant getting wet, whether it was from the precipitation falling from the sky or the saturated earth flinging it up from the trail. So when I was given the opportunity to review some of Endura's new women's products, the waterproof MT500 spray baggy shorts were a natural choice. Of course, as soon as they arrived in the mail, it stopped raining and the rest of the summer has remained relatively dry. But I still found some water to splash around in and test out these pair of ladies' baggies designed for wet conditions. The MT500 spray baggy shorts are constructed of durable Cordura fabric and feature extra waterproof panels with a taped seam on the crotch and the rear. As waterproof shorts, I was a little concerned they wouldn't be very stretchy, but this is not the case. They actually form to the body quite well and allow for an exceptional amount of movement thanks to extra stretchy panels built into areas such as the hips and lower back below the waistband. The waistband itself provides plenty of stretch and includes an integrated belt. These shorts also feature two front pockets for storage and thigh vents to help with airflow. They are click-fast compatible, which means that you can easily attach an Endura undershort or liner via little snaps in the waistband. The bottom hem is also Velcro, adjustable for a baggier or tighter fit. The only downside of these shorts is that despite the vents, they aren't as breathable as a lot of other shorts due to their waterproof nature. So in the summer, they get pretty toasty. They're great for the shoulder seasons and cooler months and do a good job at their intended purpose of keeping you dry. I'll probably end up wearing them a lot in the winter over a pair of tights. No one likes a soggy bottom and these shorts are the solution. The Endura Women's MT500 Spray Baggy Shorts come in sizes extra small to large and retail for $129. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Single Tracks podcast. Peace.